Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Emmett and Rory from the My Wall Street analyst teams. Today, we're talking about General Electric and Johnson & Johnson breaking themselves up, Opendoor and Airbnb's recent earnings calls, and our first thoughts on the soon-to-be-public company, Sweetgreen. So guys, thanks for joining me today. Rory, welcome back from your holidays. Have you had hey. a chance to listen to last week's episode yet? No, I haven't. I heard it got grilled. <laughs> we, we were having a conversation about Peloton and we didn't think it would be right that we talked about Peloton without uh, without mentioning yourself. What were your thoughts on, on Peloton's recent troubles? Well, that's why I left the country, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to avoid having to talk about it. Um, it was terrible quarter. <laughs> it really was. I mean, it wasn't as bad as I think the stock reacted to. A lot of it seemed to be just a forecasting problem in terms of management. Yeah. Um, they definitely seem to have kind of gotten a little bit ahead of themselves. I think the issue will be now is how much have they built for demand that is waning? You know, if, yeah. they, if they've end up building for $50 billion business in the next couple of years and it's not going to be that, then that's going to increase their costs. It's going to, you know, depress their margins. But I think it's all fixable. I I, I still think it's a, it's a strong business. And, and I think if you, you take a business that's gone from like, you know, 3 billion, 4 billion market cap to 45 billion market cap in the space of a year, you're going to see those kind of growing pains. Yeah. Look, we'll see how, see how they get on over the next quarter. If, they, if it continues to be a trend, I think that's where you're really going to see the problems. But in terms of, you know, the su- subscriber numbers were still up. They're still, they're still um, forecasting strong subscriber numbers. Um, engagement was a bit down, but I think you it, that would be expected. It was the summer. People had been locked up for two years. They were going out a bit more. They weren't exercising quite as much. As Mike said, people were going drinking. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you know, when the <laughs> pubs are open and you haven't been in them in two years, you're not going to be on your exercise bike as much as you were the year before. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty zen about it. You what know. about you, Emmett? Have you ever fled the country because a, a stock prediction didn't go your way? <laughs> I'd never be home. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I haven't. But uh, it's a great idea, Rory, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's probably it's probably a, an expense to the company as well, is it? It's one of your your perks. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's all expense. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> It's been a while since me and Emmett have just doing this podcast by ourselves. The old, getting the old band back together. The old it's band the old crew, together. the OGs. John and Paul. <laughs> the original gangsters. Yeah. Great. That, does, that better not make me Ringo. Um, no, you're, you're Yoko. <laughs> right. Um, so let's oh, move good, on I've got a great Beatles fact, by the way. You're going to love okay, this. Okay, go for it. Previously to Ringo Starr, the drummer for the Beatles was a guy called Pete Best. And years later, when the Beatles were, you know, massive band he very cynically released an album called best of the beatles in order to try (laughs) in order to try and uh, profit off their success i think that's brilliant that's great yeah that's fantastic (laughs) i I would buy that just just like to to give him the credit for a great uh, title for an album (laughs) 
<laughs> so let's move on then. And so over the past few weeks, we've had news of not one, but two iconic companies deciding to break up with themselves. First up was General Electric, the company founded by Thomas Edison back in 1892 and probably one of the most classically American companies you could ever imagine. Management has said that GE will split into separate publicly traded companies for its aviation, its healthcare and its energy businesses. Healthcare will be spun off in early 2023 and the separation of its renewable energy and power business will occur in early 2024. Next up then was Johnson & Johnson, who also followed suit, announcing last week that it plans to separate its business along its consumer products business and its pharmaceutical and medical devices operations. Both of these will become publicly traded companies when the split happens within the next two years, it's expected. So on this podcast, we talk quite a lot about companies merging and coming together, but I don't think we've actually ever really spoken about a company literally breaking apart. We've spoken about how Facebook maybe should break apart, but it's never actually happened. Rory, what's going on here? Why are these two companies splitting up? This this is a funny topic for us to discuss because for as long as I've been with this company, what, nearly seven years now, we've maybe mentioned Johnson & Johnson once. I don't think yeah. we've ever, in my recollection, mentioned General Electric. It's just yeah, now, even though it is like, such a huge business, such a huge part of uh, the stock market. This was huge news, though. Was certainly for GE, if not so much the Johnson Johnson one. I mean, to the, undoubtedly, there's some listeners out there who aren't even sure what General Electric do, particularly in non-US listeners, but even US listeners, I think, because uh, it's such a massive, huge business that did like so many little things and didn't really seem to have that kind of one business that you could really like put your finger on. Um, but this this goes back. This was founded by J.P. Morgan, not. The, the bank JP Morgan, the actual JP Morgan was one of the founders of this business. And what it was, it was a kind of amalgamation of various businesses that had been formed by Thomas Edison and was founded in 1892 and it's connected to New York. And their first product was, was a light bulb. There's actually a novel based on how this business was founded that I read last year called um, the, the Last Days of Night, yeah. uh, which is all about the feud between Edison and George Westinghouse, Nikola Tesla. If you're looking for any historical accuracy, it's not really a book I'd recommend, but it's a decent holiday read, I suppose. But GE was one of the original 12 companies that made up the Dow Industrial. So it's 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 an OG. It's it's, it's a literal OG. <laughs> like I said, first first product was pretty much light bulbs. Um, but over the next 100 years, the company became involved in basically anything you can possibly think of related to electricity or electricity generation. Um any part of that value chain from generating the power to anything you can put in a plug socket. GE was pretty much in that business. Fridges, fans, toasters, ovens, x-rays, televisions, television stations, radio stations. They got into turbo engines for planes in the kind of the 30s and 40s were vital to the efforts in World War II. They are like a truly like a, a iconic American business up yeah. there with Ford, IBM, US Steel, However, there really became, I think, this kind of overarching belief throughout the entire business that GE was such a great company with such great managers that they could literally run any business better than anyone else. And it got to the point where they really didn't care kind of how bad or how misaligned the business was with General Electric. They just believed that their management style was so brilliant that they could take anything and make it success. And um, I think anyone who's ever watched kind of 30 Rock will certainly know this from Alec Baldwin's character. <laughs> he's, just, he's just full of like management talk and Six Sigma and the, <laughs> like any all these like borrowed functions from Japanese automakers and just being very efficient and doing lots of market research. And then came along this guy in 1981 called Jack Welch, 
whose management style was incredibly hands-on. He insisted on knowing absolutely every aspect of the business. And he was he was a tough manager. He had a kind of attitude. His thing, one of his phrases was, fix it, close it, or sell it. He went, any business she were in, he wants to be either n- number one or number two. And that was it. If, if, if we weren't number one or number two, he'd get rid of that company. Um, he also brought in this kind of management style called Rank and Yank, where uh, every year all the employees ranked each other and the top 10% were automatically fired. Um, <laughs> that sounds like an awful, awful time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, this was like, you know, the 80s and 90s was pretty cutthroat. He he used to justify it as an act of kindness. He was like, look, if they're not fitting in here, better send them off and get them to find something else to, wow. to, to work on. <laughs> but I mean, at the, they became incredibly inquisitive, this business. They acquired NBC. They got really heavily into insurance and financial services in particular, which you know really had nothing to do with the original General Electric. And at one point, GE Capital, as kind of financial services part of the business, was half the company's uh, revenue. Yeah. And you know, Welch retired in two thousand one, was named Fortune's greatest manager of the century, um, and then came along this guy called Jeff Immelt, who was a pretty unlucky character uh, (laughs) not only was he following in fortune's manager of the century you know um anyone follows soccer will know when alex ferguson retired that was that was a tough tough act to follow but he took the job in september 2001 and four days later 9-11 happened and g was on the line for a huge insurance invoice for that which really kind of exposed the risks in the business and led to a, a serious downturn then, you know, the financial crisis came along uh, not too long after that. And Immelt decided to kind of sell off the, the financial side of the business. He bulked up, he tried to bring the business back into the industrial side of things, bulked up on acquisitions, made a $13 billion acquisition of Alstom, a French company, which was in real dire straits itself. Um, but the problem was without the capital side of the things, the company couldn't support its dividend, essentially, which was yeah. everything that people thought about when they thought about GE, one of those things, you know, people are, t- it's one of those kind of 101s of investing, invest in dividend companies, the dividend aristocrats, we have a, a ETF and every dividend aristocrats, companies that never cut their dividend, always keep pumping it up. And GE was one of these dividend businesses that you just relied on the business for. Um, and when Emil stepped down, his successor, John Fannery announced that they had to cut it, that they hadn't been generating uh, enough cash flow for years in order to pay this dividend. So they were essentially, you know, not growing the business as a result of having to pay this dividend. Yeah. And, you know, the, the look at, you can look at the stock chart, the, the stock lost like 90% from its highs. Huge for a business that used to be the biggest business in the world. Uh, back in, I think, 2000, it was the, it was the biggest business in the world. Um, the, new, the new manager, Culp, has come in. He's basically said, look, we can't, this is too big a machine to run. We're going to have to cut, break it up. And, you know, I think it, it is, it signals, it's a real kind of signifier of the end, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, the canary in the coal mine of the big, big conglomerate, or at least definitely this way of doing things. This way of being like, well, we're so, we're such a great business that just buying anything makes it more valuable. You know, just by being part of our family means that this is a more valuable asset because that clearly wasn't the case. And, you know, I mean, I think Johnson & Johnson, it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's weird, that, it's weird that it kind of happened at the same time, but it's probably not quite the same issue. J- Johnson Johnson, obviously, mass conglomerate as well. They have over 100 subsidiaries broken into kind of three operating segments, which is pharma, medical devices, and consumer health. Really what they're doing is they're, they're just spinning off the consumer health segment, which is its smallest 
Um, it's not actually its slowest growing. It's that's the medical device business has both basically been flat for the last five years. Yeah, but I mean you can certainly see the synergies in keeping pharma and medical devices together. Um, whereas uh, consumer healthcare is a different kind of ball game. But yeah, I mean Johnson Johnson doesn't really have the same issues that the GE did. It's it's currently paying a three point one percent dividend. It's using half its free cash flow to do that. So it, and it's one of the dividend aristocrats. So I mean two kind of similar but very different stories at the same time. Um, yeah, the GE one definitely end of an era. <laughs> yeah, well, just to go back to that point because I think that's an interesting point—the kind of the death of the conglomerate—and and we we see a lot of you know I, I we were recently talking about you know the biggest companies ten years ago and the biggest companies now and there's such a shift in terms of industry and the type of companies. But I think that idea of of conglomerates and and that that concept of a style of company or a structure of company coming to an end and it seems like a lot of the companies we talk about today and a lot of the exciting companies today are maybe good at one very specific thing and do that very well would you agree with that yeah I mean, you can you could make almost a kind of comparison to the old kind of way tech used to work with these kind of enterprise resource platforms where you know you had to get everything off sap yeah. Um, you know, you couldn't you couldn't pick and choose. Everything had to be run off on SAP. And today businesses don't do that. They want to get their HR from Workday. They want to get their customer service from Zendesk. They want to get their accounting software from Blackline. It all wants they all they want it all to plug into a central planning software. And you know, when I think back about like every we've never had a conglomerate in our showroom. Disney maybe is the but like yeah. You know, that that's kind of the biggest kind of an intellectual property conglomerate. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, we've never had one of those. We've never had Whirlpool or P- Procter and Gamble or or any of those big conglomerates because they never really spoke to us in terms of the things we look for in a great investment, which is kind of visionary leaders, you know, uh, simple, straightforward businesses, you know, that great growth. They, they just seem to be these kind of dinosaurs of, of these that you were like trying to figure out what do they actually do? What's the business here? Yeah, they're they're so big. They're nearly countries in themselves, or, or governments in themselves. Um, so I suppose the question, and if there is anyone listening who is a shareholder in either of these companies, what happens? Do you get a bit of all of these new companies, or or do we have any any um, insight into what's going to happen if you're a shareholder? Yeah, you'll just get the whatever way it'll split. You'll get shares in each in each business. Um, I mean, I've never really followed G as a business, but from what I do know, it, this seems like a great move by the management because it just had to happen. I think their aviation business is actually quite strong. It's the power business that's really been a huge drag on that company for years, and so it, you know, breaking them up and and being able to focus on on the on the strengths of each business separately is probably a better idea for them. We pitched around a few ideas for new names for Facebook when they announced their name change recently. Have we got any ideas for uh, for either of these companies when they're breaking up? I know well, I'd like to mention a wildly successful competition I launched on Twitter when this exciting news broke from J&J, where I asked people to suggest a name for the two new companies, with the winner getting a shout out on Stock Club. And while the undisputed victor by a majority landslide was the was the only entrant, and it was <laughs> Neuromancer. <laughs> Neuromancer, uh, who goes by at Ireland's offline, and he his uh, ideas for the two new companies were Jimmy Johnson and John Johnson, and then <laughs> Johan Johansson. <laughs> so, which in fairness was pretty good, considering he was going to win no matter what. <laughs> yeah, like Anne Marie came up with um, Johnson and West Johnson, which I thought was quite good. <laughs> yeah, and Jamie, our Jamie said uh, Jack Johnson and John Jackson. Yeah. 
nice tongue twister there. Yeah. It's tougher to come up with the General Electric ones. You can't have as much fun with General Electric, I don't think. So let's move on then. And on the last episode of Stock Club, we spoke about some recent earnings reports and how they kind of told us a lot about the state of the wider market at the moment. Well, the earnings reports are still coming in thick and fast, as our analysts know. And there are two recent reports that I want to zone in on today open doors and airbnbs emmett i'm going to come to you first about open door as it's one of the companies within the horizon portfolio that you look at regularly after zillow's hasty exit from the i-buying market recently a lot of people were looking towards open doors earnings to see if this was a zillow specific issue or if it was a wider problem with the i-buying market in general what did we learn from open doors earnings about this well if i may james let me just start with a quick recap of what happened with zillow which i know has been previously discussed on stock club but you know uh, there's a, several blurred lines and zillow's zestimate of home values is for everyone in america the go to reference uh, for homeowners but what they did as our listeners will probably know is they tried to use this algorithm to buy and sell homes and it went badly wrong and zillow's i buyer division where firms, you know, iBuying is where like firms use algorithms to quickly value, buy and sell homes, launched yep. in 2018 in Phoenix, uh, a few years after Open Door. And the principle behind iBuying is very simple. You leverage your data or big data and estimated price at which you can buy and sell a property and make a profit in between. And what generally an iBuyer will do is offer lower prices than traditional buyers, but attract sellers, you know, on the promise of a faster all-cash deal. Mm. And I, I basically had the I precursor to iBuying in my life years ago. Well, half of the deal. So what happened was years ago, 10 years ago, my wife and I were moving house. Uh, my family and I are moving house. We brought the kids, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> and I knocked into our next door neighbor to tell her that we were going to sell. And, and uh, there was a for sale sign going up in the garden only to end up shaking on a sale with, uh, with her daughter the next day below the market rate in order to minimize hassle. So when I buying as a trend emerged in recent years, it spoke to me. I think it would speak to most people because selling houses is notoriously stressful. It's it's costly. It costs time and effort and you have to have your house presentable and you have to get out of it several times in the course of the process for people to look around. Anyway, iBuyers do all of that with a website. And and once an iBuyer owns a home, an iBuyer, of course, being Open Door or, or previously Zillow, it works quickly to renovate the property, relist it, and then in theory a profit. There was an analysis of millions of home sales across the US between 2013 and 2018 by Boffins at Stanford, uh, Northwestern, and Columbia, I think. And they found that iBuyers made around 5% profit with their home flipping. And as again, I'm sure you discussed in a previous episode, Zillow believed it had the secret to yeah. the iBuying world, which was the Zestimate. And they launched in 2006. It was trained in millions of homes across America. And that's basically what Zillow had. Now, before I get on to Open Door, apparently the tech firms all choose Phoenix as the city to tweak their model because apparently homes in the city are of a consistent and standard design, which allows them to kind of tweak their model and their algorithm very okay. well. Anyway, in October uh, of this year, Zillow recorded its most active week of buying homes ever in Phoenix City. Um, which was part of its goal to buy 5,000 homes a month by 2024. Then suddenly, overnight, it just stopped. It yeah. literally just stopped. The guillotine fell. And as we all know, then a few weeks later, 
uh, co-founder of Zillow, uh, I think his name is Rich Barton, said that basically they were getting out of the market and it just wasn't working. And, and they shuttered its eye-buying arm and said it was going to cut 25% of the workforce. Zillow was absolutely slammed. Okay, so what that did as a backstory was create a question mark over the entire industry uh, that is eye-buying yeah. and the entire movement. So Act 2, Scene 1, enter Opendoor, who reported this past week. And for uh, most of our listeners will know Opendoor only do eye-buying. And they, by the way, paused their eye-buying operations last year because of the virus. But let's just talk about how Opendoor did when they reported last week. Revenue grew 91% quarter over quarter to about $2.3 billion on the sale of just a couple short of 6,000 homes, like 5,995 homes or something, uh, which was up 72% from Q2. Revenue per home sold increased by 11%. It purchased over 15,000 homes in the quarter, up about 80% from Q2. It also grew its inventory to around 17, about 17,000 homes, which was worth $6.3 billion, an increase of 130%. Now that's some heavy inventory for a business that's young and and quote-unquote small to have 6.3 billion dollars worth of bricks mortar wood and electricity <laughs> cables that's some serious inventory and that's surely the biggest risk factor for a company like open door like it's not like i don't know inventory like iphones or something like that these yeah. these are these are bricks and mortar houses these aren't easy to shift if if they need to shift fast i think yes and no james like if you think about it a home has a much 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 longer shelf life if okay. you like than, yeah. than a piece of technology which uh, you know is aging the minute it's made I, I agree with you, but uh, yeah, you're right. It's massive inventory to be holding. And really the trick is you want to get it sold as soon as you have it renovated. And Open Door clearly are confident because in the quarter, they also expanded to five new markets to find the cities, I guess. And, and in other words, it, it now has 44 markets in which it operates. So the business, uh, and, and by the way, net loss for the quarter was $57 million. And that kind of encapsulated stuff like stock-based compensation and, and whatever, but uh, but what really we heard in, in the earnings call with Opendoor last week was that the model works and that Zillow, the shockwave that Zillow sent through the industry was particular to Zillow. Okay. And it wasn't, uh, or at least it's unlikely that the industry itself is, and it's a new industry, is actually not viable. It's a very okay. viable business. So uh, it is clearly high risk. And Opendoor has demonstrated the ability to navigate this risk and it has more track history and more technology to operate more efficiently than its competitors. And And the company's growth really has just been absolutely incredible. It's really yeah. incredible. And the homes acquired, when you just look at that as a metric, in Q4 2020, you know, they acquired something like two and a half thousand homes. It kind of by Q1 of this year grew to just shy of 5,000 homes. By Q2, they bought 10,000 homes. And then as we heard in the most recent quarter, 15,000 homes. So they are accelerating uh, into the curve, so to speak. And uh, it is a business that I believe, well, I'm very excited about it. I think it is a, I think it's again, another industry that is being, that is disrupting an old world industry. I buying is disrupting the old way things were done. And as I mentioned, but my anecdote, like 
I enjoyed the process of selling quickly way back when. It brings massive benefits to a seller and something that I think will become a norm as the years go by. I think another element to remember with the Zillow thing was that Zillow did this to protect their other business, their what mm. was their what used to be their core business, which they kind of turned up on its upside down and said, "Open door don't have a core business to protect. This is <laughs> yeah. their core business." Yeah, and the company was built from the very start to do this. So, um, there is that element of like, well, you know, Zillow had to, you know, be careful as to what it stands to lose. Whereas Open Door really kind of has nothing to lose. <laughs> yeah, this totally. is like this is the whole thing. So yeah. they have to keep going and they have to keep pushing it and, and they seem to be doing it quite well. Yeah. And in fact, and that kind of references back to the point you made earlier, Rory, about conglomerates kind of add layers on as the year go by and then there's suddenly everything and they just need to bifurcate or split down and go back to basic principles. As you said, whether you, you work day and uh, black line or whatever, you want to have the expert in all the various fields. And and eye buying is a very particular uh, algorithm it's a very particular formulatic way of making money and and you're dead right Zillow had figured a way of making good money a different route and it's good to see that they actually took that move and, and went back to doing what they do so well yeah a, a brave move indeed let's move on to Airbnb then another company that reported recently and Airbnb is really riding on a crest of a wave at the minute Rory what were the big highlights from Airbnb's report for you a 280% jump in profits isn't bad going yeah, they're certainly riding across to a wave. It's like travel good, uh, stay at home bad. <laughs> it seems to be the general narrative of the stock market right now. Um, but no, this was like this was a really important. It was a while ago, so we haven't talked about it. But it was an incredibly important quarter in, in, in Q3. Um, it's typically where they generate thirty five percent of their revenue from, um, and I think you know it showed clear signs of recovery in most of their KPIs and in their revenues, which, you know, is a very good indicator of a fast pandemic recovery. Keep in mind, this was a business that could have been on its knees during the pandemic. Their entire business model was disrupted. Yeah. Um, And like you said, they, they, they saw, they saw gross bookings grow 49%. It was slightly below expectations, but but only very slightly. They had record revenue up 69% year over year and 69% sequentially. Obviously those was coming off some very soft comps. But again, it was, you know, the highest revenue the company had ever seen just a year or two after the biggest shock to the system a company like this could ever take. So, well, you know, first of all, well done management for, <laughs> for that, for that, for that pretty rapid pivot. Um, they also saw record profits with net income of 834 million. Interest, there was some kind of interesting tidbits from the earnings report that I think are deserving of a little bit of a read, which is, they saw domestic and short distance travel have come back to above pre-pandemic level. Long distance international travel is steadily recovering. What I thought, and non-urban was their strongest section as well, which I thought was uh, interesting. People fleeing just, the cities. Uh, pretty much, yeah. And you know, there was a quote, I'm going to read a full quote um, from the shareholders that day, which is, the world is undergoing a revelation in how we live and work. Technologies like Zoom make it possible to work from home. Airbnb makes it possible to work from any home. This newfound flexibility is bringing about a revolution in how we travel. Millions of people can now take more frequent trips, longer trips, travel to more locations, and even live anywhere on Airbnb. In fact, 20% of our nights booked between July and September were for stays of a month or longer, and nearly half were for stays of at least a week. Wow. I thought that was incredible. Like, uh, there was just so much to unpack in that. And, and and the kind of previous numbers that you kind of go, 
is the pandemic the best thing that's ever happened? (laughs) (laughs) Like this is, I mean, this is so early days uh, in this. But like when I think of my experience over Airbnb over the years, I didn't even know you could stay somewhere for longer than a yeah. month uh, until six months ago when I when I first saw that kind of feature popping up, and now it's a quarter of their, or a fifth of their business. I think it's reflected in the product as well because Airbnb have brought in new features recently that kind of play into this long term stay. They've brought in Wi Fi verification, so you know the strength yeah. of a Wi Fi in a place, which kind of hints towards obviously pleasure, but also working in a place and um, there's that that i'm flexible feature you mentioned has been expanded to like a month or, or a, a range of months too yeah i mean so when this was happening and we were all working from home i was going god it'd be great to like if you could you'd love to go somewhere you know like san sebastian for a month you know, or just just live in a different city for a month um and work and the one thing I did think was like, oh, geez, you'd have to worry about the Wi-Fi, wouldn't you? Yeah. You, go to, you go to an Airbnb and they're like, oh, yeah, we have Wi-Fi. It's like, mm, you sort of have Wi-Fi. The, the icon is there. I'll give you that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, and that idea of verified Wi-Fi actually came through someone on Twitter getting onto Brian Jeske saying, hey, you should, there should be a way you can verify Wi-Fi at these places because you never know what's coming. And they've, I mean, they have innovated rapidly. They had a hundred product innovations launched earlier this year they just did 50 in their kind of winter update which as i said include you know included that speed test for wi-fi more flexibility new translation technology which is obviously a big thing for airbnb and enhanced insurance for hosts which has obviously become a huge issue for them as well and you know i when i was thinking about airbnb before we added it i thought like they really did turn the world of travel upside down you know when you think about companies like you know obviously the internet made travel a whole different ballgame but when you think about companies like booking and expedia for example these online travel agents they really just took something that was happening already in the real world and just moved it to digital you know that was kind of their thing and well done to them they've created a multi-billion dollar businesses through it and made things substantially easier than it used to be obviously i'm not saying they didn't deliver value but what airbnb did was really kind of move us away from this idea that we all had to end up in kind of the hotel district of some major metropolis where, you know, there was an abundance of tourist attractions, but also an abundance of terrible food and people who don't live in the city. You know, that's yeah, yeah. what Airbnb did was give us the freedom or the opportunity to live in cities, to actually like kind of even even if it was only for a couple of days, you were living, you were staying somewhere where people actually lived. You're interacting with people who actually lived there. You're having food or coffee where locals actually went and had food or coffee. And that's a totally different experience than what you get if you, you know, book into an Ibis or a Hilton in the middle of some massive city. And I wonder if they could do this for for this work for home movement as well. I think yeah. it's an incredibly exciting element of the business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's move on then and have a look at some of the things going on around my Wall Street at the moment. Rory, you added a brand new stock to my Wall Street shortlist this week. Emmett, I believe you're also getting a pitch ready for a new stock in Horizon next week. I won't ask you for any hints on it uh, in case you, you spill the beans. <laughs> um, of course, it's Black Friday next week too, and there's some great deals coming for both my Wall Street app and the Horizon service. For the next week, you can get $30 off of my Wall Street subscription. That's a 30% total discount or a whopping $150 off a Horizon subscription. 
description. Remember, my Wall Street is the only place that you can access our hand-picked shortlist of stocks as well as other great features like our first look reports and newly listed companies and more analysis and commentary from the analyst team on the market. Horizon, on the other hand, is the only place where you can see everything that Emmett does with his own personal portfolio, all the buys, all the sells and all the companies that have caught his eye. Both of these offers are available now, but for a limited time only. So make sure to follow the links in the notes for today's show and grab these deals before they're gone. Guys, we've no time for mailbag today because obviously with the two of you guys on, we've, we've spent w- way too much time talking. <laughs> and I didn't get to say anything about Airbnb. That's not fair. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, are, are, sorry. Are you legally allowed to say anything about Airbnb? I think I am. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that to the lawyers. So let's move on to the elevator pitch then to finish out today's show. Um, so guys, classic elevator pitch. I want you to just pitch me a company you're researching at the moment. And I'm not even going to bother saying 30 seconds because I just know it's not going to be in 30 seconds. <laughs> um, Emmett, you can go first, seeing as you didn't get to, to say your piece on Airbnb. So about a year ago, a Horizon member called Brooke posted on our community about the fact that he works closely with the restaurant industry and provide software to a few brands and at the time he said that the restaurant company that he was most excited about is Sweetgreen. He said and I quote, Sweetgreen have strong leadership, the food is delicious, the locations are beautiful and they have a big following they also have great foresight. They launched their outpost program in 2019 which is essentially personalized catering and for our listeners here in Dublin sweet green is a bit like sprout they do really nice high-end salads and you know whatever way you like them so uh sweet green has since Brooke posted on our horizon community they've filed to go public with the SEC uh, okay. and it looks likely to value the company at about 2.7 billion dollars uh, and the chain is unprofitable since opening in 2007 has 140 restaurants in 13 states and is on track to double in size over the next three to five years on page one of their s1 which is the one that will get most of my attention because after uh, we work, it really <laughs> it's yeah. set the scene for that from that point on. But on, on page one of their S one, their mission statement is clear: our mission is to build healthier communities by connecting people to real food, which sounds nice, but could be any restaurant. But still, it's fine. Um, and just before I wrap it, because I know we're about. 15 seconds into my 30 seconds. The S1 also shows that Sweet Green's 2021 revenue through to kind of middle September totaled about $250 million compared to about $160 million in the same period a year ago. So the revenue is growing. The company ended last year with about $140 million in losses. Uh, so on a restaurant level, I think it's a, it's a nice, I think I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that somebody said it was great because that ultimately yeah. is what drives a restaurant. But certainly from a profit profitability level it doesn't score too well when you look at the the giants and the multiples that are out there sweet green would get mm, it would get a d i'm not too keen on what i see when it comes to return on invested capital but you know like all that stuff pales when you think of you know chipotle was a very inefficient restaurant in its early days now look at it um the yeah. question is can sweet green create that customer evangelism far in in new markets and new cities and that remains to be seen is is inefficient the new word we're using for giving people food poisoning <laughs> <laughs> someone on fintech i remember who said when the s1 came out said delighted to see the venture capitalists have been paying for my 15 dollars salad for the last four years <laughs> rory what about you what company are you looking at at the moment 
Yeah, taking a look at a business called Alarm.com. Um, been an awful long time since we mentioned a dot com on this uh, on this podcast. Uh, it's a business I think a lot of people might be familiar with. They do kind of home security, smart doorbells. That, but I, when I looked at them, they're actually focused on so much more than that. They really kind of have a whole program of smart home and Internet of Things devices, everything from you know, your heating, your temperature, your garage door, your security. And uh, it's um, they're growing pretty sustainably over the last kind of couple of years. They're expected to bring in about $725 million this year. And about $450 million of that is going to be in what they call their SaaS or licensing revenue. Um, and at $4.3 billion, that kind of looks very interesting to me. Mm. You know, 10 times your uh, your recurring revenue. In, and you've also got a kind of hardware component tagged onto the business. It's almost one of those things where I'm kind of like, what's wrong with them? Yeah. <laughs> where's the catch? <laughs> where's the, where's, what's the catch here? Um, how you, like, I, it's a very competitive environment. There's a lot of companies in this space or a lot of companies with big ambitions to own this space, including Amazon, uh, as we know, who have uh, purchased, I believe, purchased their one of their big competitors, um so you know looking it's early days looking at it but there's it seems like an interesting business yeah worth having a dig at definitely we when 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 we were all in the office we obviously we had an amazon ring and uh the the flaw in the amazon ring was shown straight away when we realized that someone still had to go down to the door to open it and it was just kind of like a a mexican standoff every time the bell rang and we were looking (laughs) at each other across the office so that's it for today's show remember if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle make sure to get in touch you can find us in all the usual places that's on twitter at my wall street hq on tiktok that's at my wall street or just simply shoot us an email at pod at my wall street.com if you're enjoying the show tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave us a review or a rating on whatever platform you listen to us on from the three of us here today thanks for listening in and we'll talk to you next week ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.